0: I think this is the start of something interesting. The SplinterNet side, you know, China already effectively has a SplinterNet, and they have done a really impressive, if evil, job in getting a lot of the economic benefits of being connected to the global Internet while still meaning information control. The Russia side, I think it's going to be a little less subtle. If Russia gets disconnected, it's going to be a straight up disconnect.
1: I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 10th, 2022. Today we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our podcast series on the online information ecosystem. As Russia's brutal war in Ukraine continues, tech platforms like Facebook and Twitter have been key geopolitical players in the conflict. The Kremlin has banned those platforms and others as part of a sharp clampdown on freedoms within Russia. Meanwhile, these companies must also decide what to do with state-funded Russia propaganda outlets like RT and Sputnik that have accounts on their platforms, and how best to moderate the flood of information, some of it gruesome or untrue, that's appearing as users share material about the war. Evelyn Duick and I spoke with Alex Stamos, director of the Stanford Internet Observatory, and really the best person we could think of to talk through these issues with. We discussed how various platforms, from Twitter to TikTok and Telegram, are moderating the content coming out of Russia and Ukraine right now the costs and benefits of Western companies pulling operations out of Russia during a period of increasing crackdown, and how the events of the last few weeks might shape our thinking about the nature and power of information operations. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 10th. How tech platforms are navigating the war in Ukraine. Let's begin with a quick overview of of where things stand. First off, just because events have been moving really quickly, I should say that we are recording uh, midday Eastern time on Tuesday, March 8th. uh, And tech platforms have been changing their approach to the conflict, honestly, almost as quickly as the conflict itself is developing. Alex, would you mind giving us kind of a a greatest hits of how platforms have been responding to what's going on in Ukraine and Russia? What are some of the more notable actions that platforms have taken and, and also the governments have taken in relation to platforms?
0: Right. So first off, thanks for having me back uh, to discuss this. So I think when we talk about this, we have to really turn it into two totally different categories. How are the platforms dealing with covert and overt propaganda uh, from the Russian government? And how are they handling other kind of cyber issues as well as the use of their platforms by the Ukrainian government? So on the covert side, you know, the policies that the companies put in place, of which I was part of a lot of them, coming out of 2016 are still kind of in effect. Evelyn's absolute favorite topic, uh, coordinated inauthentic behavior, uh, continues to be of interest uh, to these folks. Um, And so what we saw was a coordinated takedown between Facebook and Twitter. I believe it started with Facebook discovering this, but they looped in Twitter and Google and such. You know, that, that kind of coordination has gotten a lot better over the years. Uh, and there's a Cornet takedown of a very traditional kind of Russian troll farm activity of the creation of a bunch of fake accounts that were injecting Russian propaganda narratives and trying to amplify them online. The other covert thing that was discovered was a group called Ghostwriter, uh, which had been inactive for a while. It has been attributed to being related to the Belarusian uh, intelligence services. Ghostwriter was breaking into the accounts of verified influencers Especially in the region, and then using that to spread Russian propaganda, so kind of a more of a combination of a traditional cyber offensive capability combined with propaganda, and so that's on the covert side, and you know the companies are aggressively going after that. We have no evidence of any kind of covert Russian propaganda breaking through. I think they're probably doing a pretty good job there, at least the big American platforms uh, there should be an asterisk to all this like I'm sure we're going to be mostly talking about American companies, but there's something a little bit. I think there's something a little bit provincial about that. The truth is, is that you know probably the most important platform in the region right now is Telegram. And so we should probably talk about Telegram too, because what they're doing is actually much more mysterious. But And then on the U.S. platforms on the overt side, so this is declared Russian propaganda, Russia today, Sputnik. And then all the gray zone propaganda, which is, all of the subsidiaries of the subsidiaries of these companies that end up hiring people in germany people in america people in the uk to push their propaganda that is where the companies have finally kind of made an aggressive move so you know several years ago we we had the there was the decision to label state media all of the companies kind of came up with definitions of state media that tried to differentiate between russia today and the bbc um, in some cases they didn't differentiate and they just labeled everything and there was a lot of talk back then of limits being placed on the kind of reach state media would have I don't think I can think of a single platform that actually in the limits. All they did was labeling. And that is the biggest change now is that the official state media, as well as, again, a lot of the gray zone propaganda is now being quarantined and downranked. And that means different things at different platforms. On Twitter, they show you, if you post any link to a Russian state media site, they show you an interstitial saying, hey, do you sure you want to post this? effectively this Russian propaganda. Yoel uh, from Twitter claims that there's already a 40% drop in the cases of people saying yes on that. So that seems to be having an effect. And then they're, they're doing kind of a quarantine model where it doesn't show up in search. It doesn't show up in trending and such. Same thing on Facebook where they've made it much harder for people to reshare. They haven't kicked them off, but it, reshare in that the, apparently the engagement has dropped through the floor for those those platforms.
2: So we definitely want to talk about Telegram, but also TikTok in this context as well. But just to pause a little bit more on the sort of somewhat extraordinary actions that platforms are taking, or, you know, they may not be extraordinary from one perspective, but they are a bit of an about turn. And one of the things that you sort of uh, tweeted out that got a bit of traction very early on in this conflict was, uh, it's appropriate for American companies to pick sides in geopolitical conflicts, and this should be an easy call. And I'm curious sort of um, what you mean by that, whether you got any pushback, because we've sort of had these companies for a long time insisting that they're neutral, that they want to stay out of politics, um, that they don't want to take sides. But I think it's you know pretty clear that you're right, that they have, uh, to a large extent, been taking a side and, you know, for, For for obvious reasons.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, this has actually been kind of a shtick I've been on for a while, including when I was at Facebook. I I wrote a whole memo internally, quote unquote memo. I shouldn't use the term memo. So Facebook posts, you know, Facebook internally runs on Facebook. And so people will do Facebook posts about things they're thinking about and then it'll leak to the the Times or to BuzzFeed and they'll post it as a memo as if you like you dictated it out and then, uh, you know, it, it went to everybody's mailboxes, right? It's like a Facebook post. But I, I did like an internal post that leaked about picking sides. I think one of the challenges of the companies is they always want to come up with as neutral as possible, legalistic definitions that they apply to try to create these changes. And- There is a place for that, right? I think especially when you're talking about adjudicating speech and political speech between people who are in a democracy and you don't want the company to come down on one side or the other in a democratic election, that's a great example of a place where you want to be as neutral as possible. And I think the work to create neutrality there, the creation of the oversight board to adjudicate a bunch of that stuff, I think is smart. In a situation like this, I think that's much harder to do. One of the problems of state media in this situation from authoritarian states is it deals in like a big macro level asymmetry, which is that, you know, these governments have the ability to get their propaganda out. And that is true for lots of democracies. The UK, Australia, Japan, the United States all have official voices that get their story out. The difference is, is that authoritarian states then use other mechanisms to try to manipulate the global conversation to their benefit, and most notably censorship of the platforms or censorship uh, using the law against domestic opponents. And so in a situation where the, the government is able to get their voice out, but they are also able to either cut off their citizens from seeing dissenting voices or punish their citizens from being dissenting voices, I think that that's a macro level asymmetry here that somebody has to address and governments have not addressed it. Democracies have done effectively nothing in this space. And so just like in all of these other problems that we talk about, it's kind of up to tech companies to make these decisions themselves, because there is no kind of really good legal guidance. You can probably look at some, you know, UN human rights rules and such, although all of this stuff is always conflicting as as you know much better than I do. Whenever you look at like kind of international human rights law, you can come up with all kinds of different equities that are conflicting. So in a situation like this, I think it's important for companies just to kind of pick a side, that they're saying, we're going to be on the side of democracies. You know, Russia is the aggressor here. They're clearly the aggressor. They are killing thousands of people and throwing thousands of their own 19-year-old conscripts into a, a meat grinder here. Their propaganda is beyond the pale of saying that Ukraine is run by a neo-Nazi government when they have a democratically elected Jewish comedian as their president, you know, the, the John Stewart of Ukraine. It, you know, it's just it's a reasonable place to pick a side and then not try to come up with some kind of legalistic explanation of how you got there Now, I personally have some rules that I would take out of this. I would specifically have really aggressive rules around state media in in countries where you are being censored as a platform. I think that is a a great way to kind of neutrally recognize the asymmetry here. But in this case, there's such an obvious moral and ethical asymmetry. I think it's okay for the platform just to say, we're on the side of democracy here and they shouldn't have to justify it to themselves.
2: Yeah, I mean, in terms of that question of tech companies stepping into the breach, you know, we've all been watching this for years, but it's just been so obvious in the last few weeks how these companies have become massive geopolitical players. Like, you know, there's a land war in Europe and half of the continent's leaders are on the phone with people like Nick Clegg um, to to talk to them and make requests. And, you know, as you say, of course, they're they're not states, and I think that this really has shown the limits of legal formalism. I'm totally happy to take that punch on behalf of lawyers Everywhere, I kind of get frustrated with this discourse around like companies should just follow international human rights law um, in this space because it's not clear what that means. Um, it's not right. clear what it means with respect to, to states, let alone with respect to, to private companies, because they're not bound by international human rights law in, in the same way. But as you were pointing out, there are equities on all sides. And whether you think of this as a formal legal matter or whether you just think of this in terms of like policy or, you know, companies trying to do the right thing. Uh, one of the things that we've seen with you know these companies taking a stand and picking the side of democracy has been the response of the Russian government to um, ban many of these platforms or cut the Russian people off um, right. from access to them, and that obviously has huge costs for those people who are using them for many pro-democratic or you know uh, anti-authoritarian ends, such as organizing resistance or even just getting information uh, about what's going on. And so I'm curious about how you think about those trade-offs and whether that's a a relevant consideration that tech companies need to take into account and whether it's just that it got so bad in this case that the the line was crossed or, you know, is there a line?
0: Yeah, I mean, so legitimately we should be worried about The access that normal Russian citizens have to the global internet. But I do think companies over pivot on that, you know, they they overemphasize that point, and they take on a responsibility that's not theirs. And they take away agency from the Russian government. The truth is, is that Russia has been investing in what is happening now for years, right? The Great Firewall was not built in a day. And Putin has clearly been very jealous of the kinds of control that she and the Chinese Communist Party have over the domestic and international conversation regarding the people's Republic of china, the Chinese you know one of the big stories of the last three four years in our space is that china has has looked at the Russian model, took the parts of the Russian model that work through away parts of the Russian model that did not work, and has massively eclipsed Russia from their ability to do propaganda but then also kind of societal information control. Not just domestically in Chinese, not just anymore in, you know, uh, Cantonese and Taiwanese in uh, what they consider wayward provinces, but in now in English and German and Spanish and a lot of other uh, languages that allow them to manipulate conversations in the West. China is now the by far the biggest propaganda actor and the most successful. And I think Russia looks to China and they see not only that they have that propaganda capability, but they have a control over the domestic internet they never had. And so for years, it's been documented that the Russians have been buying packet inspection systems, that they've been uh, requiring ISPs to do effectively a distributed great firewall. So Russia does not have the same kind of network architecture that China has, since the way the Chinese internet is physically laid out is architected to allow for surveillance and for censorship. And that is not true for Russia, but they're trying to kind of recreate the same kind of capability by distributing these, these things out into all the ISPs. And so from my perspective, Russia was probably going to do this anyway. They were looking for an excuse to cut off, you know, the the Western media that they see that Putin sees as poisoning the minds, that the, the platforms that allow his, you know, domestic opposition to speak. And so I I don't think that is something that the company should take into mind. I think it, the responsibility of the big platforms is to provide services to the Russians as much as possible to keep Russian citizens safe from a data perspective. But if Russia is going to decide to cut it off, that should not change the calculation of what is the right thing to do outside of Russia, because you have to also remember, you know, you're talking about maybe 1% of the users on a global platform like Facebook are Russians. And to allow the information environment of the other 99% to be poisoned for the access rights of 1%, even if that was linked, which again, I I don't think is true, is I don't think an appropriate wane of the equities here.
1: So do you expect that, you know, I don't know, things have been moving so quickly, I was going to say in a year, but maybe in a week or a month, that the Russian internet will look substantially more like the Chinese internet? Or are there limitations, like you said, just the physical, the way that the internet is laid out that will prevent that from, from being the case? I mean, one major difference is, as you say, obviously, Russia has been planning to create a kind of a separate runet for a long time. But on the other hand, China has built up the censorship apparatus over you know many, many years, whereas in Russia, we basically went from sort of a a society that was Pretty authoritarian, but where there were some openings for free media to basically completely close society in the space of about seven days. And as one of the results of that, for example, not only that all these kinds, all these media outlets have been closed down, obviously, as we've been saying, access to To Facebook is blocked. Access to Twitter is blocked. I don't think YouTube yet. But there's also this question of, you know, are people going to be able to continue using VPNs, especially because, you know, if MasterCard and Visa are no longer operating in Russia, can people pay for their VPNs? Like many Russians do use them. Are they going to be able to continue doing so?
0: Yeah, so that is a big question. And again, the, the Great Firewall, what China has today was not built in a day. It has taken a decade, and there is some estimates that China has something like a million people working on information control propaganda and censorship. So, you know, there are there are capabilities the Chinese can throw at this, the Russians can't. China has a massive domestic networking industry, but probably a lot of the stuff that Russia needs, they could buy from China, assuming that they can get them to take rubles or convert it or take oil for 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 deep pack inspection boxes. Yeah. So I, I think we are moving that direction, but it will take a while. One of the challenges, this is just kind of like a bigger challenge, is that we, we don't have a historical example of this, that Russia was, you know, for the last 20 something years, Western businesses have been integrating Russia into the economy, right? If you look at the Fortune 500, probably 400 of those companies had a Russian office uh, until a couple of weeks ago. trillion dollar economy, deeply integrated with the West. Lots of multinationals operating there, freely. And so, one of the big things that's happening here is just the disconnection of Russia from the rest of the world, like turning Russia into North Korea. North Korea was never integrated with the West. You know, Iran, you know, maybe is the best example we have, but it's not like Iran was a huge economic superpower in 1979. And so, this is one of the questions: is like how much can Russia put that kind of Chinese control in place if they also want to get the sanctions undone and have some of that connectivity. And the Chinese do it through joint ventures. They have lots of rules on things like private networking on WAN links and MPLS and such. They have all kinds of kind of structure in place to allow them to have information control, but also to allow their employees to get paid by the West and to kind of suck as much intellectual property as possible in country. And Russia doesn't have any of that. So I think that is one of the challenges that they're going to be facing, that if Putin goes as much as possible... Let's say they, you know, there's there's talk of a peace deal that you know clearly the Russians are are lessening their demands. If say there's a peace deal in the next couple of weeks, and Putin wants sanctions removed, one, our Western governments going to react to lowering sanctions while he's still doing these kinds of things like blocking the internet stuff, and and then obviously lots of other actions, whether or not he pays reparations to Ukraine and such. But the other question is like. If companies want to operate there, the ability to do so behind a great firewall-like system uh, when you don't have, again, the infrastructure China has built in place to make that possible is a real question. And, And I don't think Russia is a big enough market for companies to really stretch themselves like with China. The other benefit China has is they have the cooperation of a number of Western companies. This is kind of my bugaboo that nobody talks about it, but Apple has done more for the People's Republic of China than any company has done for any authoritarian state, right? They block VPNs for them. They block Tor. They block secure messengers uh, in the app store. They put all of their backup data in China. And so that kind of cooperation from a platform owner allows China to let their citizens have iPhones with none of the privacy benefits that anybody else on the planet gets, that's the kind of deal that China can get because they're so important from both a manufacturing and a demand side um, that Russia will never get. So uh, I do think there are limits here of how far they could go if they want to get to the same level as the Chinese. I think that will take years and perhaps never happen.
2: So I want to take a little bit of a tangent before we keep going on the Ukraine crisis. Uh, to talk a little bit about the broader picture and the, the the trends in this area and, you know, the predictions of a, a wider splinternet than just runet and whether, you know, this whole pick-a-side on, on the, the side of democracy represents a new era of how these platforms operate and the, the, the space, the market that I'm watching always most closely is India with respect to this. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. India has been diplomatically very quiet throughout all of this and, I you know, I noted that there's a number of big differences to a number of the things that you said were really relevant with with respect to Russia here, which is, you know, the size of the market, both in terms of like profits for the companies involved, but also the size of the population and their access to information, um, the technological capacity of the Indian government. And, you know, it hasn't built up all this infrastructure over time like Russia has been doing. Uh, And also the fact that it's still ostensibly a democracy, even though we are seeing this rather terrifying authoritarian crackdown on free speech, which we've talked about on this podcast a number of times. So I'm curious whether you think this is the start of a broader trend or how you think this is relevant at all for how companies should think about the Indian market.
0: Oh, I think it, it's absolutely part of a broader trend. I mean, so first, all, I totally agree with you. I, India has been my bugaboo for years of you have to look at India because they are legitimately a democracy, right? Modi probably has more supporters in India than there are people who live in the United States or the EU. He is popular. People voted for him. It was a free and fair election, unlike Russia. But once he got in power, the BJP has been, you know, consolidating the power of the state in a democracy that does not have a, you know, Bill of Rights in the same way you're lucky enough to have in the United States to try to utilize the power of the state against domestic opposition, and then also to incite violence against religious and ethnic minorities, most specifically Muslims. So yes, India is incredibly important. I mean, the, I think I've said this on the show. I'm sorry. I, this is the problem of being a repeat guest I don't know what I'm repeating myself, but uh, I'll just do it anyway, which is, you know, t- to me, one of the core kind of contradictions of all of the platforms right now is if you ask them Do you follow the law in the countries where you operate? They say, yes, of course, we follow the law. And if you ask them, do you protect human rights? They say, yes, of course, we protect human rights. And clearly you can't do both of those things globally, right? You have to make choices in situations where you're going to follow the law or where you're going to push back a little bit or you're going to completely ignore the law. Russia passed a law about data localization. The big tech companies completely ignored it. When India passes those laws, they don't ignore it, right? Because they have thousands of employees there, uh, they have a massive marketplace more specifically for Facebook and Twitter if if you're locked out of the 1.3 billion consumers in the People's Republic of China then you can't go to your board of directors and your shareholders and say oh also for ethical reasons we're also going to drop you know another 1.2 1.3 billion consumers in India all right like oh yeah you know, a third of the world cannot get to our service and just from day one that's not a deal a publicly traded company can make. And so that gives India a huge amount of leverage, especially over those companies that have no access to the Chinese market. Yes, I think this is the start of something interesting. The splinternet side, you know, China already effectively has a splinternet, and they have done a really impressive, if evil, job in getting a lot of the economic benefits of being connected to the global internet while still maintaining information control. The Russia side, I think it's going to be a little less subtle, if Russia gets disconnected, it's going to be a straight up disconnect. And this is going to start to happen just practically if this continues on. The way that internet traffic works is, you know, ISPs build relationships with other ISPs. They sign peering agreements. They sign carriage agreements where you have these large multinationals who are carrying traffic on their fiber. And so you can go to cogent communication or level three and you can say to level three, I want to have a connection between Berlin and Moscow. And the way that actually works is some of that fiber belongs to level three, but a lot of it is leased by them that they go and do all the hard work. And so to the extent that a bunch of that fiber in the ground in Russia actually belongs to Russian companies and is is used based upon contracts that are now denominated in rubles. One, the economics have gone all screwed up, but just getting money into the country is a real problem. On my consulting side, you know, I'm consulting a number of companies that are trying to deal with this, and they're dealing with really basic things like the amount of money they have in Russian banks right now is all they can pay their employees with, perhaps ever. So they have to make a very difficult decision of, of do they just pay out severance and, and let everybody go, or do they, try, do they think that there's some way that they can pay people in the future if they want to keep operations going? And you're going to have the same thing with all these contracts contracts where it's going to be effectively impossible to pay ISPs and partnerships. And so all these things are starting to get shut down. We've already seen a number of internet companies and they say it's kind of an ethical side, but a lot of it is just the business side of working with Russian ISPs with fiber in the ground is impossible. And this is going to be both the public internet, but then also backbones. And so, uh, and WAN and MPLS links. So, you know, the private internets that tech companies run between their points of presence and their data centers, you know, Cloudflare today talked about they have servers in Russia, but they're setting them up that if they lose contact, those servers just basically kill themselves. That means that Cloudflare is contracted with an ISP to get either dedicated Lambda, so dedicated their own color, or like something like an MPLS link that allows them to to move their own private information in and out of Russia. Those kinds of contracts are starting to disappear and get turned off. And so the the disconnection of Russia is going to be very Messy, because a lot of it's going to be actual disconnection, like actually fiber lines are going to stop working, and people are going to start uh, null routing uh, Russian IP address spaces if bad things happen. And again, that's much different than like what China has gone for. Uh, And so from Russia's perspective, they need to be prepared that their internet continues to work, that they're not relying upon American root servers, you know that the the main root server for DNS is is run by Verisign in in here in um, the United States. Those are the kinds of things that traditionally the internet won't work if you are completely disconnected from the U.S. And so they are doing steps for that. But I think that is hopefully that's probably not their first plan. That is a backup plan in case all the stuff falls apart.
1: That's pretty sobering. I think and a a good reminder of just uh, what it takes to cut an entire country off from the outside world. It doesn't take much.
0: Yeah, right? right. Like, I mean, really, like if, if the West hasn't done this yet, right? And I think part of it is because they want internet access to get into Russia, but also it, you know, cutting the Russian people off from the rest of the world is probably not in the benefit of people who are supporting Ukraine right now. But effectively, if you had the EU and the United States go to maybe seven or eight companies, then you could probably get them to drop 98 to 99% of Russia's internet traffic overnight. Like the only exception would really be China and whether or not they would get more traffic through China. But even then, if you get those companies to null route Russian IP ranges, then effectively Russia will be completely cut off from the internet. I, I expect there's actually a plan to do this somewhere in US Cyber Command, that in the situation of World War III breaking out and Russian hackers going completely hog wild across American and Western networks, that there's probably a plan already in place of contacting and either forcing or twisting the arm of major ISPs just to make Russian traffic not transit their networks.
1: Let's hope it doesn't come to that. Um, I, I do want to turn back at least briefly to RT and and Sputnik, though, because I think that combined with concerns about cutting people in Russia off from from the rest of the world is really important. So you seem to think that you know, it, cutting off RT and Sputnik or limiting access to them, you know, quarantining them, as you say, is a, is a valuable step. And I guess I, I wanted to push you on that because. I don't know if listeners have ever actually looked at the stuff coming out of RT and Sputnik but like I would say it's not very good. It's mm. it's clunky, it's sort of weird. You can tell that it was maybe translated from a different language. It's never been clear to me how effective those are in terms of of propaganda. Like so how important are bans or restrictions like those on these on these outlets particularly given that as you sort of alluded to earlier they they can give russia ammunition to cut off access to independent news i mean what one argument might be okay people aren't you know convinced by what they see in rt but it's an important symbolic measure what is your view on that
0: yeah so what is the effectiveness of propaganda is like one of those massive open questions that nobody is ever ever able to answer. Right. Is like the fundamental failing of what one might call, you know, like Joe Bernstein wrote that article, the Atlantic about the, the misinformation complex. And he had some like totally legitimate points. And one of the most legitimate points was that we really don't have any good evidence of, Specific propaganda campaigns being truly effective. That being said, I can think of a couple that I think probably were effective, both in the United States and elsewhere, but I can't prove it. So, so that is like just an open question of how effective was RT. The engagement that RT gets is actually quite large, right? Um, I believe of their subsidiaries, actually the one that was has been most effective has been Spanish. And so RT's kind of uh, penetration into Latin America and trying to, you know, support uh, Venezuela and Maduro and against uh, pro-American governments in Latin America, I think is probably actually their high point. RT has never been that effective in the U.S. It's been much more of an issue for for Europe because all of these Eastern European countries have among their older population a bunch of people who are part of the Warsaw Pact who speak Russian as a second language. And so in Germany and Poland and the Baltic states, RT has been seen kind of as a very right wing alternative to democratic aligned media. And I think for Europe, it's been a much bigger deal than here in the US. For us, like RT, you're like, oh man, it's that thing that you can get in like cable channels and some hotels uh, and you can get it from direct TV if you really want. And some people watch it, but it's not a big deal. I think it's been a much bigger deal for Europe. And so do you, I think it's important to cut them off? I I think what's important is, I think actually the companies have ended up in a pretty good place where they are allowing these platforms to exist. They're allowing the URLs to be on. So like something I would be totally against and that was proposed was that if you try to post art, an RT.com link on Facebook, Facebook just doesn't allow it. There are a handful of sites where that's true for Facebook. Those are mostly like spam malware sites, sites that have child sexual abuse material, but you know, for political stuff, I don't think Facebook's ever taken a step like that. And I think that would be wrong. Right. Um, the next step up would be taking off the kind of official accounts of all these folks. And so far, the platforms have found this kind of middle ground, like you can exist, but we're not going to allow you to utilize the tools that we have to massively increase your reach. We're not you're not going to recommend you. You're not going to show up in certain searches. If somebody wants to find you, they can find you. But they have to find you to see you. And I think that's actually a pretty reasonable place. It's like, you can have your voice, but we're not going to help you reach 20 million people. Now, that works for Facebook or Twitter based upon how they work. Um, You brought up TikTok. TikTok is a fascinating example of, you know, TikTok has a very good American-based trust and safety team with a bunch of Silicon Valley veterans who are really trying to do the best thing possible here. And in the end, if they want to do anything, they have to get approval from policy people in Beijing, and then they have to get product people in Beijing to implement it. And so if like if I or anybody in integrity or uh, investigations or safety in Facebook thinks it's hard working with Facebook product managers, um, working with Beijing-based product managers on a state media policy seems like hell, right? Um, and so TikTok has announced that they are now doing something. They're labeling Russian state media only. So far, they have not... Uh, labeled Chinese state media, uh, that will probably be when cows fly, right? And so for a platform like that, it is a little bit harder in that people don't search out and find this stuff. TikTok is all about the algorithm, and so for them, there's a lot of things that they could do on the back end that are very mysterious. But you know, TikTok has traditionally been very kind of guarded about what kinds of decisions they make from an algorithmic ranking perspective. And so I think there's nothing much going to happen there. And then on the YouTube side, YouTube is more like a cable network where people watch hours and hours of content. And so I, I do think it is important for them to do some limiting, but it it might also make sense to deplatform on YouTube because YouTube is effectively taking one video stream and multiplying it out to 10, 15, 20 million people. And that's a kind of a very different model than say a, a Twitter or a Facebook.
2: I want to go back to the point that you made about the effectiveness of propaganda being totally speculative, mostly unknown and perhaps unknowable, and that public perceptions of the effectiveness of propaganda often have very little correlation uh, with the reality of it. And, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a billion PhDs written about what's going on uh, on social media right now and autopsies of, of what's happening. And, you know, many things that we don't know about now will become apparent, perhaps. Um, but one thing that, you know, I'm I'm watching or have seen is that, you know, after years of hearing about Putin being the dark arts master of propaganda, um, and having, you know, Americans brainwashed Into believing anything, Uh, the dominant narrative here is it's been pretty ineffective, and that public opinion is by far on the Ukrainian side here. You know, again, that could just be a product of you know the facts, but you know, it it is striking how I think the public narrative about social media platforms in the last few weeks uh, and the power of messaging through social media I think has taken a bit of a turn it's it's no longer it's there is more of this pro-democracy bent and I'm curious whether you think that's a a product of the actual actions of uh, social media companies whether it's a product of the particular dynamics of this conflict um, and whether you think that there's any potential for this I mean I think companies are clearly hoping for this but whether it has any potential to reverse this tech lash narrative that has dominated the last five years of news cycles
0: right so it we were already in kind of tech lash backlash, tech lash lash, uh, you know, like the, the Atlantic article I mentioned, I think was like a, a good point of that. I, we've always had this problem of you have to disambiguate with the actual problems that exist on the platforms and then kind of the media created spectacle about it, which has in some cases is closely aligned is sometimes totally disconnected, right? So like where it's pretty well aligned is, you know, on on some of the Russian propaganda stuff, like these things should not exist, they should not be able to use it. But then, you know, the assumption that Russian propaganda is all knowing and all powerful is something that nobody at the companies or really any, like, at least empirical academics. Um, So there's people who just assume that this stuff works, but people who actually do empirical studies have been kind of, you know, saying that like the the idea of Russia as having all this control is not correct. And, And so I think like there's been a a backlash to kind of the media created narrative on this. That doesn't mean that there isn't like a legitimate problem here. Um, There's still, there's still like real struggles to have here, but for the most part, the covert propaganda problem seems mostly settled. Like at least for the big American platforms, they're doing a pretty good job of shutting that stuff down. And we have more kind of a difficult discussion now about what is legitimate content in the United States from actual Americans? Like, how how do you allow for broad democratic discourse without allowing for the manipulation of that um, by a handful of, of really large actors and influencers? And that's just a, a much harder thing. And so, yeah, I mean, I do think this one might be a little bit of a turning point. I think the other thing is just like the general vibe shift here of everybody's paying attention to something really important. So we've just all kind of moved on from a bunch of like culture war BS stuff of which a lot of the tech lash was. Like tech lash is, a lot of it is kind of a, from my perspective, there's a lot of culture war against techies by, you know, your stereotypical Brooklyn living, Ivy League educated New York Times writer, you know, who uh, bemoans a a information history that never really existed in a, a period of time in which Americans were perfectly, uh, rational beings who would go and and take five or six gatekeeped you know, journalistic inputs during the day to make a rational decision like that's never existed. But to the extent that like we've shifted away from that, I think it just goes along with the fact that people are paying attention to something that's really real. The election is going to be a mess this fall. I think there has been very few changes since the 2020 election to deal with the fact that the vast majority of election related propaganda comes from Americans is amplified by Americans has nothing to do with foreign influence and is very difficult to deal with from a policy perspective. And I think the election is going to be a mess and that was going to be true no matter what. Now my real fear for the fall is that Putin has nothing left to lose. And so to the extent that the Russians held back on direct attacks against election infrastructure, that would help them, so chaos in an election. I don't see if if the sanction regime is still in place in the September, October timeframe, then I don't see why the Russians don't let everything loose against state and local election infrastructure as and tied to a propaganda effort. And so I do think we'll get back to this conversation. It'll just be because we'll be back on kind of domestic American issues where the policy response by the companies is actually much more complicated.
1: I also want to talk specifically about the Ukrainian strategy here or or the strategy of the Ukrainian government, but also many Ukrainians, many people in the Ukrainian diaspora, and also many people who are just supporting Ukraine online. Like what what can the strategy tell us about how to counter information operations? Another way to phrase that is, you know, I've seen some some suggestion that what Ukraine is doing is sort of information operations for good, as it were, <laughs> like a, another manifestation of what that can look like, or that it's, you know, something that's completely qualitatively different in in its goals and, and strategy. What do you think about that?
0: I mean, so to back to the, the impact side, I mean, I think one of the issues that the Russians are facing is that their propaganda has just so far outstripped reality. Again, like claiming that Ukraine is a neo-Nazi state, claiming they're creating bioweapons, they're creating nuclear weapons. Like these are just claims for which there's no factual basis. And there's also no, there's not a lot of people who already based upon kind of their political identity are going to want to believe these things. I think the appropriate way to think about all this propaganda is as a, a supply and demand problem. That yes, we have a huge supply of, organizations and individuals who want to supply propaganda and disinformation but we have to also think about the demand that we have a a big a huge amount of distrust of authority that's global this is something that has been a multi-year a multi-decade trend and has a lot of different inputs of why that's happening and a lot of people who are looking to explain the world and who who don't believe what they're being told by people in authority And from all kinds of different backgrounds. And so that creates a huge demand where people want to be told that there is something that is going on in the world that makes sense, even if it's evil or some kind of conspiracy. And that demand side has not gone away. Now, the difference is that Russia's supply here is of propaganda that only fits their own crazy narrative and only fits kind of greater Russia semi-fascists uh, who who want to, to reestablish the Soviet Union, except with a bunch of capitalism and a bunch of people getting rich. And the global audience of demand for that is quite small. So I, I think like what Russia is facing is a supply-demand mismatch. When Russia supplies propaganda about, you know, Democrats in the United States or propaganda about, you know, American imperialism uh, targeted at the DSA and the far left, then there is demand. And so that's how I try to think of like I don't think this is the the end state for Russian propaganda. I think they'll do well again. What has Ukraine done well? Well, the Ukrainians have been demonstrated like real authenticity in a way that we have not seen people who were attacked by propaganda attacks before. Like Zelensky talking to the phone, his demeanor, the you know, like all of the production values around proving that he is who he is and that he's there with his men. It is a incredibly compelling human story, but it's also just really well built. To demonstrate a level of authenticity that doesn't come off of a polished RT, you know, talking head. Right. And so I think authenticity, that is another thing for which there's a lot of demand is for authentic leaders who actually are who they say they are. And so I think one of the lessons here is. Anything you can do to demonstrate that kind of authenticity is is really important, even if it means things are not perfectly produced. You don't have lots of comms people and lawyers looking at your statements, stuff like that. I think that the second thing is like the the Ukrainians have had their own propaganda here too. There have been a bunch of different stories that have turned out not to be true. The ghost of Kyiv you know, the, the Snake Island story turns out to be much more complicated. they're, they're You know, uh, that some of those people survived. I mean, we have these stories that have become rallying points for the entire world, but also the Ukrainian people that turn out not to be true. Uh, and they are getting the lift from the fact that the tech companies have effectively taken a side here and are deciding not to like, even if something turns out not to be true, they're not going to erase it or downrank it or something like that. And that's fine with me. I Again, like I, I'm I'm past trying to like adjudicate things like propaganda on a totally fair basis. I think we're in a war between democracies and totalitarians, and it is okay for the companies to to not be totally fair in this. But it is also a little scary to see them effectively choosing that You know, Ukraine is going to be able to have a much more open information environment for their stories than Russia. Even if I agree with it, there is also a scary part here.
2: Okay, so I think that last statement that you made is probably a pretty controversial or inflammatory one about the idea of like, we don't need to worry too much or as much about propaganda on one side versus another, because it is sort of this completely abandoning the idea of a neutral principle. And, you know, you, you paid out lawyers before, and this maybe is the lawyer coming out in me. But I mean, I, get, I do get a little nervous about that. Maybe not so much like maybe the line is just so clear here. Maybe this is a totally sui generis to throw around another loyally favorite term sui generis situation that is so exceptional that we won't face it again. But you know, there is this question of how should they be treating false information circulating from the Ukrainian side or other people trying to capitalize on just the fog of information war by spreading these kinds of rumors or hoaxes. And then also, you know, there's been this question in the last sort of week in particular about humiliating or gruesome images of soldiers, which is, you know, propaganda in its own way. I have some sympathy uh, for the idea that in the heat of the moment, it's, you know, it's really difficult for platforms to do anything. And so maybe they should err on the side of leaving things up because if they start trying to adjudicate things where no one really knows what's going on, it's going to get very messy and there's going to be way too many mistakes. But I you know, I have more hesitation about thinking of it as a long-term position. Uh, And I'm I'm just curious for for your reaction to that.
0: Yeah, I I, I understand your concern. I just might, the cynical side of me says that the decision to have inaction was a decision before, right? The decision to be quote-unquote neutral is actually a content-related decision in each of these contexts. So like, the platforms have never really been making totally neutral decisions. And again, like, it is the asymmetry here that makes it okay, like the macro asymmetry. So, in a situation where you're talking about again actors in a democratic context, you're talking about people who are fighting in a German election. The French election is coming up, and the French election has everything from the far left to the far right. That is a situation in which the French government is not using their power to. You know, Macron is not a dictator. He does not have the ability to silence his his enemies. Trying to be neutral in how you handle those issues, I think, is important. I think we're moving away from content-based, you know, there's actor behavior and content-based rules. I think we're overall moving away from content-based rules. The the height of content-based of uh, disinformation rules was, the, was COVID, and that turned out to be kind of a real disaster for the companies, because it turns out adjudicating this stuff in real time is incredibly hard. It is very hard to be an arbiter of truth as your entire podcast. Uh, we don't find it that
2: odd, you know, we're just nailing it day after day, week after right. week here, but right. yes. <laughs> some people may.
0: Right, I mean, th- that is the other option, is they could just make the two of you the dictators of each of these platforms. And I'm sure everything will be fine. The obvious choice, we're, we're happy clearly. to serve. <laughs> right. And so, like, I just, I think, like, that, like, the height of COVID, they're trying to adjudicate a very quickly moving scientific consensus. And that turned out to be a real disaster for the companies. And so they are falling back to actor and behavior-based. And I think that's fine. In this case, I think treating Russian actors in a situation where Russia is the aggressor they're the much larger country and they are beating up on a little democracy, it is okay to make a decision that that's bad. And so making an actor-based decision here is fine. Again, like trying to adjudicate what is the truth in a war zone, I think is effectively impossible. And so deciding that like, we're not gonna adjudicate what's true and then we're also gonna treat every actor as completely the same, that is not a content neutral or a, a ethically neutral decision. That is a decision to benefit the country with the larger mouthpiece, with the more money, with the more propaganda. And so I don't think they should give Ukraine an exception to rules, but I also just think like some of these rules can't be applied. Uh, on things like the graphic images or the parading of prisoners, I think that's actually a totally fair thing, especially if you have something that's like backed by the Geneva Conventions. If Facebook wants to say, we are not gonna facilitate violations of whatever Geneva Convention has that you can't parade prisoners out on TV, then I think that's a totally fair thing because that's something that they can, they really can root in international law that has been adjudicated over centuries. But for the, the straight up propaganda side, I think it's fine to make an actor-based decision here uh, and to try to steer away from the content-based decisions.
1: So earlier, you'd mentioned Telegram as one of the platforms that's been really interesting here. And I do want to make sure that we we get to that. So Telegram, of course, has been used really heavily, not only by ordinary Russians and Ukrainians, but also by the Ukrainian government in distributing information. And Telegram founder Pavel Durov released an interesting statement the other day, basically saying that he uh, is not going to cooperate with any Russian efforts to allow the state access to telegram channels. So what, what role do you think has, has telegram been playing and how should we sort of understand them as an actor here?
0: Right. So telegram is like a fascinating company and product. It is very mysterious and it, you know, I'm going to do my best to try to sum up here, but it's like a super complicated kind of drama that's going on here. So like you said, Pavel Durov is the founder and still the CEO of Telegram. He is famous for starting vContact, um, which is effectively a Russian Facebook clone that was like a straight up clone of Facebook, did very well. He sold it. He, he sold his part uh, and did very well financially for that. And I think that's how he ended up funding Telegram. But why he was pushed out of vContact is a complicated picture that has to do with both his relationship to other economic interests in Russia, but then also some claims that the Russian government was trying to censor and get information from V-Contact. And so he gets pushed out and he leaves Russia and he goes, starts Telegram. Now, for a long period of time, Telegram had employees who were both in Russia and out. Now, Durov says that they have no more employees in Russia, which I think is a critical thing, because if you're going to make any of these decisions, having employees in Russia is going to be extremely dangerous for them. He's very, very rich. It is a private company, so there's very little transparency. Um, Just a couple things about Telegram is advertised as end-ending. Encrypted, you know, every time a mass a mass media outlet calls Telegram an encrypted messenger, an angel loses its wings uh, because the end-to-end encryption on Telegram is actually very limited. It only works on peer-to-peer conversations when you opt into it. The vast majority of conversations that happen on Telegram and the majority of conversations that are relevant to this discussion that are grouped-based are not encrypted. And so Telegram has access to all that data, both the content data as well as all of this metadata and so who they're providing that data to is a big mystery that nobody really knows. And there have been some sketchy things. Telegram was blocked in Iran. And then mysteriously, the Iranian government let tel- they did a deal that they got let back in. What did they have to do to get that access is the kind of thing that we don't really know. So Durov was trying to play it neutral for a while. And now he has explicitly come out on the Ukrainian side I think one of the things that that really hurt him here, uh, that pushed for it, is when uh, the Russian military was dropping leaflets in a Ukrainian city to try to convince Ukrainians to surrender. You know, kind of your standard leaflet, uh, like you, you know, at the beginning of of Dunkirk uh, when the Germans are doing that in France. The Russian one, the the modern 2022 version of it, had like you know, you should surrender. It's it's helpless, all that kind of stuff. By the way, to get more information, here are our, our official Russian military Telegram channels. Right. So like Telegram was the platform that. Russian military was telling people to get on so they can learn how to surrender. So I think that was not a good look for Telegram. And they are trying to pull back a little bit. But also, they are very big in Russia. And so I think he is really playing footsie with what he can do without getting blocked. And again, what they do on data access is really mysterious. And so my recommendation to people in Ukraine or Russia is not to use Telegram. I don't think it is safe. It does not provide any kind of mathematical security. You're just really trusting these people not to change allegiances for some for some reason. It is very sketchy and very risky.
2: Okay. So another non-American platform that has played a big role here, we've mentioned it a couple of times already, um, is TikTok uh, with its strong ties to China. And, you know, it, it um, the New Yorker has called this the world's first TikTok war. It's been a key source of information. Uh, there's lots of, you know, documentation of troop movements and many things beyond dancing clips. Um, to a certain extent, um, people shouldn't have been caught by surprise. Like TikTok has been a political platform for a very long time, but has somehow managed to fly under the radar And there was that moment where we had this conversation about the national security risks of TikTok when Trump threatened to ban it from the US. Um, And then it sort of, again, all petered out when Trump lost interest. And there's been some resurgent interest in TikTok again, but mainly for the kinds of things that we have interest in all platforms for, like effects on teen mental health. Um, I'm curious how you think about the national security risks. You know, it does seem like a peculiarly interesting aspect of, you know, watching a war be documented on a platform that has strong ties to China, and whether there's anything that the U.S. can or should be doing on the policy side to deal with this.
0: Yeah, I, I think in this case, I mean, the Trump administration had the right instinct here; they just had no execution ability. That their solution to the TikTok problem was to force TikTok to sell their business to Oracle, that that famous social media company full of young people that totally know uh, what Gen Z uh, wants to do every day. So, but they they did have like a correct impulse that TikTok is a real challenge couple interesting things about TikTok. First, it is the first Chinese-owned company to legitimately win in the marketplace in the West. So there are a number of other Chinese social media companies, uh, most notably WeChat, that are popular outside of China. But that is mostly because WeChat is used by the entire Chinese diaspora. It is the only way you can talk to your family safely in China, not safely, but at all in China, other than phone calls. And so you know, WeChat had like kind of the power of the Chinese state to make it big. TikTok just out-innovated Snapchat. They out-innovated Facebook. And their big innovation is, uh, one, they're video first, and their video format, the way that their video compositing works, like they provide a lot of really cool tools in your phone that allow you to create what seems semi-professionally edited videos with music mixing and sound mixing and stuff. Um, but the other is the algorithm. And so, you know, The the primary determinant of what you see in your Facebook newsfeed is who your Facebook friends are and what pages you're following. The primary determinant of what you see on Twitter is the the accounts you follow. YouTube is somewhere in the middle where people follow stuff, but there's also lots of recommendations. TikTok is almost 100% the algorithm figuring out what you're going to want to see. And man, does their algorithm nail it, right? Like they, they are really, really good at trying to retrieve context from videos matching that up with other videos that you like and feeding you the stuff that you want. And so as a result, that puts TikTok, even if they weren't a Chinese company, TikTok would have a real challenge here. Video content is the hardest content to moderate for any platform, it is the hardest thing to use machine learning on to try to understand context. Now, obviously TikTok's doing well there because the their, their algorithms are doing pretty well. But you know, for any trust and safety team, video is a humongous problem. But then you combine that again with the China problem, which is that the trust and safety team has to convince a team in Beijing to care about things. And, and, you know, what is considered trust and safety in China, even around things like child safety, are very, very different because a lot of this stuff, you know, a lot of the assumptions that are built in how, how you do these things in China is that you're under the Chinese legal system. And, you know, kind of the the way that we have to, that you have to protect a platform that operates in a Western democracy is, is very, very different. Yes, TikTok is a real issue on the content side. They've come up with this policy for Russia The big test will be, will they apply this policy to Chinese state media? You know, they're not alone in this. I would really like to see the same kind of quarantine that has happened for Russian state media on Twitter and Facebook should happen to Chinese state media and Chinese state outlets. It is completely ridiculous that the propaganda minister of, you know, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson, that he can go talk crap about COVID and imply that it's an American virus when his own citizens cannot read Twitter, right? And so I think like, again, to those macro asymmetries that it's appropriate to have that rule. For TikTok, that's going to be a big challenge to to try to come up with rules there. And then the other thing we have to worry about with TikTok is access to metadata in a war zone. So a lot of the content we are seeing that gets reposted on Facebook and Twitter is coming from TikTok. This is another smart thing TikTok does is that they brand all of the videos that are uploaded. So you know that the stuff was just ripped from TikTok. And so young people in Ukraine are documenting the war in real time on TikTok. When they upload that video, TikTok also knows at least their IP address, uh, a bunch of metadata from their phone. They're probably on an Android phone. So kind of the APIs that prevent some of that stuff are much looser than they are on iOS. They probably have their fine GPS location. And so now TikTok is sitting on this database of all of these documentation of troop movements, of defensive positions and such with fine GPS location. Who has access to that? And that is the big question that has never really been answered is does the Beijing team that does all product design and seems to do most operations, do they have access to the data warehouse that has all of that data? Can they do a query of find all of the videos in the GPS locations of people posting in Ukraine, and then if necessary, share that with the Russians to benefit their war effort? We don't have an answer to that. My, my guess is probably yes. If the answer is not, we've done a huge amount of work to prevent this from happening, then the answer is yes. And TikTok has never demonstrated that they've done that work. And so that is the another data protection thing that we've got that this war brings up is that you know access to that kind of metadata is really powerful and american intelligence community gets access to some of that via faa702 and such but they're i mean i have my problems with faa702 jennifer granick has a lot of problems with faa702 but at least there are judges involved and there's limits on the use if you could just have tiktok engineer sitting in beijing doing arbitrary queries against the data warehouse, that is like a huge intelligence benefit that could be used to China's benefit, but again, could also be relayed to Russia. What do we do about it? I'm not sure. I mean, I think we just need a comprehensive federal privacy law in the U.S. And part of that has to have a data protection regime that makes it very, very difficult to impossible for American data to be accessible to Chinese engineers.
1: I like that your endorsement of the FISA court is at least it's not Beijing. That's really a a ringing mark of confidence right there. Yeah. Uh, To to get serious again, uh, I wanted to close by asking about sort of some of the hard cyber, as it were, issues that we've we've touched on a little bit, but have mostly set to, to the side. So you and Chris Krebs with your consulting group have written about the sort of issues that companies operating in Russia need to be concerned about right now in terms of potentially needing to make a, an extremely quick exit as we've sort of touched on. Can you talk through the the different concerns that you have there and the different considerations that people should have in mind?
0: Yeah. So, you know, we wrote this post. Uh, folks can see it if they go to intel.ks.group. Uh, it's the top post on there. We're sub-stackers now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a real challenge for, like I said there before, a huge number of multinationals had Russian operations up until a couple of weeks ago. A lot of them still have Russian operations that are trying to figure out what to do. And it's a, a very difficult set of ethical responsibilities here of you know, not wanting to support the Russian war effort while also trying to take care of your employees who are in Russia, trying to take care of your employees who are in Ukraine. What is the responsibility of an employer in those situations is, is quite complex. And then if you decide to leave the market, how do you do so in a way that does not put your employees at risk in country, um, but also does not create an opening for an attack against your network or leaves behind a huge amount of really important intellectual property. And so one of the things, you know, a couple of the things we talk about in this post is that you need to be able to have controls that are only executed from outside of Russia. So it is completely wrong to ask your Russian employees, I want you to start deleting servers, I want you to start destroying stuff. There are a bunch of new Russian laws that very broadly define effectively what treason is. And uh, they will be applied retroactively in a very negative way. And so all the stuff has to be done from the outside. And and there are steps you can take to try to inventory your data, understand what's there, to shut it down in a controlled manner, and to reduce the possible risk of employees being used against you. One of my fears now is that now that Russia sees all these companies running to the door, they're going to start a forced nationalization uh, effort because from their perspective companies that provide really critical services or that do things that are part of their critical infrastructure are now leaving with no goal of coming back russia is going to have to replace that kind of industrial and service capability and the best way to do that is to grab the people who are currently organized you know capitalism is about organizing people to to do stuff together is to grab that kind of thing to make it a national business or sell it to an oligarch and then grab as much as both the intellectual capital and physical capital that is in country so that they can maintain those kinds of processes. And so anyway, the the post is, is, is pretty lengthy and we have a whole decision matrix here, but effectively, you know, looking out for that kind of nationalization is one of the things companies are gonna have to really think of because if the sanctions stay on for a longer period of time, the Russians were not ready for this, right? Like it is pretty clear Putin's decision to invade all of Ukraine was a surprise to a huge number of people. We have a leak from the FSB making such. So they were not prepared for these sanctions, but they are smart people and um, they are going to adapt. And so I think now that the shock is wearing off of the the size of the sanction regime and the breadth of the impact it's having, they're gonna start to proactively try to secure the people and the systems that they they think are necessary for them to continue operations. And so companies need to prepare for that.
1: All right, on that note, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and in our new separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. Remember to subscribe to the separate feed so you can find new episodes when they come out. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Kara Schillen. Our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review The Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon, where you'll gain access to an ad-free version of this podcast. You can also subscribe to our other podcasts, including Rational Security and Lawfare Presents The Aftermath, where we're covering the fallout from January 6th and efforts to hold those responsible accountable. As always, thanks for listening.